Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities podcast. We're continuing our 2020 Kentucky Book Festival preview. Today, we turn to children's authors and their wonderful contribution to the book festival. As our website, kybookfestival.org, tells us, teaching kids history and science doesn't need to be boring. Whether writing fact or fiction, Each of these talented authors artfully merges themes and concepts from past and present history and science to make a lasting impact on young readers. It's a lunchtime event uh, on Tuesday, November the 10th, and it features S.G. Wilson, the author of the middle grade series Me vs. the Multiverse, and pleased to meet me. The moderator and author for the discussion is Sean Pryor the creator and co-author of the graphic novel mystery series Cash and Carry, co-creator and author of the 2019 football drama series Force, and author of Kentucky Cashew and Jake Maddox, Diamond Double Play. Two of the panelists uh, on that Tuesday, November the 10th, are with us today. Kristen O'Donnell-Tubb is the author of many books, The Story Collector, and the story seeker, the award-winning A Dog Like Daisy, John Lincoln Clem, Civil War Drummer Boy, The Thirteenth Sign, Selling Hope, and Autumn Winifred Oliver Does Different Things, or Does Things Different, and her new book, Zeus, Dog of Chaos. So we'll talk to her about some of those. George Alaline is a celebrated poet and author of more than 35 books. She is a former poet laureate of Kentucky and the author of the award-winning The Private of Kindergarten. Her poem, Where I'm From, has been used as a writing model. Her new book is Voices of Justice and is illustrated by Jennifer Potter. Welcome to you both. It's just uh, uh, exciting to have you here and to know that you are going to be involved in the book festival. I'm um, I'm really uh excited about this podcast because of uh, being able to do some reading and a little research of some things that um, you've both uh, written and um, and that I've read uh, a few of your work. And so I'll just uh, ask you to start off with to, we're going to talk about uh, the books that we're featuring on the book festival, but I also want to just ask you about as a writer of, um, of, Poetry, Georgella and, and, and Kristen, as uh, both of you writing for children, is this a um, an unusual, uh, taxing uh, sort of uh, strain uh, on your imagination and 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 really on children too? Is it a is it a tough time to be a kid in America? I think it has to be. I think it has to be. I mean, especially in this in this COVID time where everybody's world is upside down and um and so much is uncertain and and kids are dealing with their own worries but also what's going on with their parents or whoever their grown-ups are and whether they're going to school or not going to school and trying to 
learn online, sometimes living in places where you have to go to the cemetery to get a Wi-Fi signal, um, you know, and and uh, it's hard to play <laughs> with that kind of thing going on. Do you think, uh, Georgella, uh, is this a time for children to read uh, more often uh, or to have their parents or grandparents read to them? I, I know of a marvelous story I read um, about just a few uh, weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times where uh, the grandchildren were in New York, uh, the grandparents were in California, and consistently for 102 straight nights, the grandparents had read a bedtime story to their grandchildren. And as a grandfather myself, I uh, immediately was quilted in, uh, in grief. I mean, I mean in, in guilt, um, maybe a little grief too, because I have not been that, um, uh, I have not taken up that practice. So are, are, are kids reading more? Are grandparents and parents reading more to kids? Uh, George Ellen, then Kristen, I'll ask you the same thing. Well, I don't know if kids are reading more. I hope there are kids who find uh, the comfort and the knowing that they're not alone, that reading a book that that touches you can bring. And I hope people are reading to them. I read to my granddaughter over Zoom uh, and I and I made a book. Uh, well, it's a keynote presentation, but it's pictures of her and it has a text so that I can read that to her. I miss so much being able to to read with her and uh, and and to be and to be with kids who you know little kids pour themselves into those pictures. They just read in a way that we've lost the ability to do. And so being with her as she uh, as she reads her own way through those pictures is. Uh, is a wonderful uh, experience for me. And, and, uh, and I miss being in schools and being with kindergartners, especially kindergartners ask the absolute best questions, the questions that we do not have answers for. We pretend, you know, but, uh, but I hope that reading is, is happening because it's a huge, it's a huge emotional connection to when you read to a kid, when you read as a family. You know, Kristen, what about um, this time that we're living through and children and and books and um, whether they're learning remotely or um, whether it's just uh, like I mentioned, grandparents like George Ella reading over Zoom. What what are your thoughts about this uh, period that we're living through? Um, well, it's definitely unprecedented <laughs> and unusual, but I did hear some great news. Last weekend, I did an event with the Tennessee Association of School Librarians, TASSEL is what they're called here in Tennessee, and um, they all reported that um, their library circulations were way up, and they think it's because... Um, there aren't things like a lot of birthday parties going on. There aren't things like, you know, going to the movies on the weekend. Um, those kinds of things aren't happening. And so um, they're finding other ways to engage their children and their teens. And I thought that was really lovely news to hear. Um, 
that those circulation numbers were up and it seemed like it was probably a it was probably a room of maybe 40 librarians and they consistently reported that so that was very nice to hear that is good news and positive news in fact uh, i think if we checked uh, I, d- I don't know about in the children's uh, area but uh, the reports are that that publishers at least at this point are really doing quite well um Unfortunately, bookstores aren't. Um, there, there's a lot of ordering going on and picking up and that sort of thing. But uh, book sales are, are really, I think, maybe ahead of last year in, in certain genres. Uh, uh, and there have been a, a lot of uh, books uh, rushed to publication and, and that are available, mostly those terrible old political books. But, um, uh, Georgia, let me ask you on, on and, and I'll just ask you to begin to, to talk about uh, the book that that I have in front of me in in uh, Voices of Justice. Um, when did you begin to work on this book, and and how from concept to publication? How long did it take? Well, it started with another book I was working on, which was a book of poems about peacemakers, and uh, and the the editor who had been interested in that book in the end, when I sent the proposal and sample poems, did not. The committee said no. So um, then my, my agent was approached by an editor at Holt who published Voices of Justice, and they were looking for someone to do this book. They had the concept of the book. And so uh, so I've never done a book quite this way before, uh, but I sent them sample poems, and then they were interested. They sent me a list of people they were would like to be in the book or, or candidates. And I sent them a list of candidates and then we winnowed it down from there uh, to these 18 folks. Um, one of the poems from that original uh, Peacemakers book is, is in this book, but all the rest of them I wrote, I wrote for the book. And I guess it had, it was very fast. I mean, it, it was less than, it was maybe nine months, maybe, you know, which in the publishing world is really fast, um, and we all know that it it, it normally takes. Uh, uh, I, I'm more familiar with with adult books, but I, so many of them were also rushed to publication and and that sort of thing. Uh, Kristen, uh, uh, Zeus is your your latest book. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, it came out in yes. June, and so. Uh, that's a little bit more maybe on the normal uh, publishing cycle, I'm going to guess. So uh, it it normally takes how long or or for you when you started with that concept? Did did that grow out of your your fondness for uh, dogs and animals and your success with uh, a dog uh, uh, like Daisy, that sort of thing? Exactly, yes. Um, Much like Georgella was saying, um, this idea kind of came from another Um, When I was researching a dog like Daisy, I kept coming across all these amazing things that service dogs could do. And I knew that um, I already had uh, directed Daisy to become a service dog who assists veterans with PTSD. But I kept seeing all these amazing um, dogs who alert uh, for epileptic seizures diabetic alert dogs, and those kinds of assistance uh, animals as well. 
So Zeus definitely, Zeus is a diabetic alert dog. And so Zeus sprung from the research that I was doing for Daisy. And yes, it was about, a, it was a traditional publication cycle. Um, Zeus has been in the works since 2018, I believe. Mm. And that's an actual uh, photograph of a German shepherd. Uh, is that Zeus, uh, the, the dog? Is that the real Zeus? It is not the real Zeus. Zeus is kind of a compilation of all sorts of service dog stories rolled into one. <laughs> so um, the wonderful people who design uh, the covers for Catherine Teagan books, um, they use these adorable stock images of these pets. And they always, they manage to find exactly what I have in mind when I'm writing it. So it's always amazing to see the covers of Daisy and Zeus and the next one, Luna. It, they are spot on for me. Well, we won't tell anybody that <laughs> uh, because uh, I thought uh, that that was, that was the real Zeus. And, uh, but, but that's fine. We, we just won't uh, share that with anyone. Well, uh, Kristen, um, tell me about your, your other work and your career and uh, your other success with, with different kinds of children's stories and, and how you're, you're both on this panel with others uh, addressing some of these uh, topics that uh, maybe have always been in your books, but uh, we're highlighting those in a way that um, it's it's going to be evident to hopefully the children reading them and, and their parents and other adults that these are books with uh, a point and a story and, uh, and a meaning. Uh, tell me about uh, your work over your career. Um, I guess I have most of my books span over to be either historical fiction or contemporary. And more of my contemporary almost always is told from an animal's point of view. Um, so there is that little bit of, it's almost a fantastical element to it, but they are contemporary stories. Um, so Story Seeker and Story Collector are both the, um, both highlight the family that actually lived inside the New York Public Library. Um, the New York Public Library, the big one uh, with the lions out front on 5th and 42nd in Manhattan. Um, there was a family who lived there from 1911 all, almost all the way through the 1940s. Um, and it was John Fiedler and then his son took over, John Fiedler Jr. And they were the building superintendents. And so um, John and his wife, Cornelia, lived inside the New York Public Library with their three kids. And these three kids had amazing adventures inside the library. They would play hide and go seek from the guards. Um, they would see who could get closest to touching priceless works of art without actually touching them. Maybe. I don't know. It sounded like maybe they really did do that. But um, oh, and they kept pigeons as pets on the roof because they weren't allowed to have pets, obviously. Um, they just led amazing lives. And um, I've been very honored to be able to do some really cool events with libraries because of these stories. Um, and it, it's been fascinating since those books have come out. I have met two grandchildren of Viviani Fiedler who just happened to find the books. And so that has been really special too. 
Yeah, well, that's that that, and you were the, you went to New York. You were in the library. You did all your research there, and yeah, how exciting! Yes, behind the yeah. scenes tours of the New York Public Library is pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would imagine. Has there also been um, either a novel or a? Um, I don't think it was nonfiction uh, based on. Of that family, Do, are you are you aware of that? That just in the back of my mind. Yes, yeah, yeah? Yeah. yeah. There was just recently, I believe it was in August. Um, the Lions of New York is maybe what you're thinking of. I, it's Fiona Davis, and she historical fiction. She hers is much more fictional than than story collector and story seeker. She has a dual timeline in hers. It's a very lovely book. I really love it. I highly recommend it to anyone who loves libraries and historical fiction. It's a, it's a great it's a great read. Um, but yeah, hers is more of her family is called the Lions family. And so it's a little bit more fictionalized than than these stories are. Well, give us a, a brief um, description of a dog like Daisy, and and also I I just love the titles. Um, uh, John Lincoln, Clem, uh, Civil War drummer boy, obviously is well. You'll tell us if it's based on someone that um, that was actually a drummer boy. Uh, I'm I'm going to imagine in the Revolutionary War, Civil War, oh, Civil War. Yeah. Okay, yes. and and then also. Uh, Curious about a dog like Daisy, which you've you've done so well with, and and we mentioned that when we were talking about Zeus. So, um, first, John Lincoln, Clem, and I'm also I have to say curious about uh, Winifred Oliver does things different. Yes, right, my longest title ever. Yes, my mom used to always get tongue tied over that title. Um, so let's see. I'll start with a dog like Daisy. Um, a dog like Daisy was born out of the idea that a, a conversation that I was actually having with a neighbor when she adopted a Great Dane dog. She just in passing said, you know, he also trains these Great Danes to become service dogs for veterans with PTSD. And it, I had one of those, and I know George Ella can relate to this, those aha moments of, I wonder how they learn that. I wonder how they learn what they learn. And so when I started doing research about service dogs, um, it was fascinating because when they're introduced into a family environment, it's a very different um, environment than just uh, a pairing of a human and a service dog. Um, the human who the dog is assisting is the only one who is allowed to feed the dog or pet the dog or walk the dog. Um, and so it's, they say that in order to build a very tight relationship between service dog and human, but it can cause a lot of jealousy in these scenarios where they're introduced into a family. So that element of being jealous of a dog to me was fascinating. And that's kind of what I wanted to explore. Like who's the one kid who wouldn't, wouldn't want a dog, um, so that's kind of the um, element that's explored in Daisy. Um, and let's see. Oh, John Lincoln Clem, Civil War drummer boy. Yes, he is. He John Lincoln Clem really existed. It's a it's an historical fiction um, overview of his life. And he actually spent quite a bit of time there in Kentucky. He spent um, when he was nine years old. He stowed away on a train and left Ohio and ended up in Covington, Kentucky, and mustered with the troops there. 
And the third Ohio unit kind of adopted him, took them under their wing, and he became their drummer boy. And he, by the time he was 12 years old, he was a sergeant. And it just, he led a fascinating life. He really did. Um, later in his life, he became a, a veterans advocate. Um, and so he, he really, I was very honored to be able to kind of share his story. He is amazing and fascinating. You're both familiar with our programs at Kentucky Humanities and our Chautauqua performers. Uh, wouldn't it be marvelous to have a, a, a young uh, John uh, Clem, John Lincoln Clem, um, as uh, a character uh, to present to, to, to children? I, I don't know. I'd have to check with our uh, humanities historians on whether or not, uh, and George Ellie, you know, that's Kathleen Poole. Um, I'd have to find out if, um, if Kathleen remembers ever having a, a child's, uh, Chautauqua performer. I, of course they'd have to, they might age out, but I don't know. We will have to work on that. And, and uh, by the way, is, is, is his, if he was in the civil war, his middle name, uh, he wasn't named after Abraham. was He, he? made that up. <laughs> he made that up when he, he, added that because he was a huge fan of Abraham Lincoln and um, his name was John Clem. And it's iffy. Nobody's really sure, you know, records from that time are, are, are can kind of contradict each other. So we're not really even sure if his last name began with a K or a C. Um, but he later in life added Lincoln to his, to his name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And very quickly, um, uh, Winifred, Oh, Oliver does things. different. Yes. Autumn Winifred Oliver does things different. That's the story. That's my first um, middle grade novel. And it's the story of how the Great Smoky Mountains National Park became a national park Um, and the stories of what happened to the families who lived there. I think a lot of times when we're touring areas like Cades Cove and we see these mills and these churches and the log cabins that are still there, we forget that they these were actually used <laughs> by um, generations of people who lived there. And so um, it's kind of the story of uh, the European settlers who were part of that area and a couple of families who are highlighted there. And so it's based on the Oliver family. It's a very fictional account of the Oliver family, but there was an Oliver family who was there and then was, you know, pretty much had to move once it became a national park. Well, now I understand uh, the emphasis and uh, and the sort of the e- essence of the panel, um, whether or not the others can contribute like you two can or not, and I'm sure they can. I, I know Sean Pryor, and I, I know he can. Um, George Ella, I'm, I must tell you, and I'm so glad that uh, even though this is a, a podcast audio only, I can see you, and it's uh, it's an honor for me to tell you what an extraordinary book, uh, Voices of Justice, uh, is. Um, I uh, did not know what to expect. I had not read about it. I, I came home uh, last weekend and um, began to look at it and read it to prepare for this podcast and was just absolutely stunned at, at the at the brilliance um at my naivete for not knowing who some of these historical figures are, I recognized 
most right away, but maybe some of the details I did not, and then some of the other names were were foreign. And to to realize uh, how important this is for children uh, and uh, my grandchildren. Uh, you're going to sell four books right away, just like that. Um, and I just uh, I want to read. Uh, just a very short segment from the table of contents or the contents, and then let you tell us about the book. But uh, someone has written, and I'm sure you had to approve of this. This might have been the um, the publisher who asked someone else to, to put this together. But it says, written to children, I'm sure, you use your voice every day to say good morning to family and friends, to answer a question in class or to sing. You also use your voice when you write or sign or communicate in other ways. The people you will meet in this book knew the power of a voice and use their voices in to become activists. Activists are people who work to bring about political and social change. Some of the activists in this book have used their voices to lift others up or to change people's minds. Some have spoken out for their communities, for the environment, and for the rights of animals. All of them have used their voices to fight for justice and to change the world for the better. Your voice can make a difference too, so speak up and speak out when you see injustice. That will, the world will be a better place because you did. And if we don't need a better lesson than that today, I don't know what it is. Congratulations. Oh, well, thank you. Um, it was a privilege to, to work on that book. And it, uh, it sustained me uh, to learn, to read and learn about the, the heroism, the determination, the, um, the character of the people I wrote about and the circumstances they found themselves in and how they, uh, the choices they made and continue to make some of them because a number of them are still living. Uh, and, and it, it, they just gave me hope and also challenged me uh, to, to remember and behave as though what one person does makes a difference, you know, because uh, and in this time when uh the truth has been disabled in some way, <laughs> like choose your own adventure. Um, and anything can be, anything can be dismissed, disdained, uh, thrown away uh, to, to see these people who are, who have, and who are uh, putting their heart and soul and their lives into uh into standing for something and in believing that together we can make a difference. So um, I, I missed working on it when it was over, I must say. Mm. Well, I want you to uh, think about um, uh, two or three of the, of the, ma- uh, of the, you said there were 18 of the um, profiles um, t- that you can tell us about and, uh, and maybe uh, read uh, one of your uh tributes to them in, in a poem or a narrative, um, uh, whatever you choose to do. Uh, we're going to do that right after we hear from uh, our writing friends at uh, Spalding University, 
right after this. At Spalding University's School of Creative and Professional Writing, students develop mastery of the writing skills, highly prized in today's workplace, including arts and humanities organizations, government agencies, corporations, and small businesses. A professional writing student will explore opportunities writing for trade and consumer media, including reviews, profiles, interviews, and articles for sports, food, travel, health and science, and other publications. Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. I'm talking to uh, Kristen uh, Tubb, O'Donnell Tubb. Three names, right, Kristen, always? Yeah, well, yes. I, I'll, I'll answer <laughs> to either. <laughs> uh, who is a prolific uh, children's uh, writer and, and um uh, also, uh, you said your novel uh, was middle grade, so it's not not just little little children. Uh, and uh, George Ella Lyon, uh, also um, a, a poet, a writer, thirty five books, a former Port Laureate of Kentucky, who's just published um, a wonderful, just a, a marvelous uh, new book called Voices of Justice. And I want you to tell us a little bit about um, some of the people in the book, uh, George Ella. But I also want you to comment on uh, the illustrator Jonathan uh, uh, Jennifer Potter and whether or not uh, you knew her before or by reputation or and the the art in the book is is worth the price uh, alone but uh, your words just enhance that so I'll turn the mic over to you well uh, I've never met Jennifer but when uh, in the early stages of the book uh, my editor Christian Trimmer suggested three possible illustrators. And he said, which of these speaks to you for this book? And she was the one I picked and she was available to do it. And the original, uh, their plan for the book was that each poem, there would be a portrait on the left page, a poem on the right page. So my poem was supposed to stay over there on its page. And, um, and then Jennifer would have her page, but, as I got into it, that just, you know, that just wouldn't work because the poems begin to um, demand some some other room and some interconnection, interaction, I should say, between the words and the illustrations. And uh, they were willing to be flexible and do that, you know, and uh, I think it, it made a huge difference to me because I had a freedom um to let the poem find the form that uh, that seemed to somehow be inherent in it, um, especially the uh, the poem about the trimates, uh, Jane Goodall, Berute Galvacas, and Diane Fossey. I worked and worked on that poem just as a traditional, you know, left to right margin poem, and uh, and it wouldn't work. It just um, it was too long, it was too lanky, it was too prosy. And I finally got to a version where the last words were the whole round world. And I thought, oh, it's got to be round. <laughs> well, how am I going to do that? And I know that people aren't going to be able to see this, but I thought I could show it to you all. Um, so I got a big one of those big post-its and I got a dinner plate. And I traced the, 
I yeah. traced in a circle, and then I began. This is this is the one I started with. This is the one I ended up with. But you know, I began dividing the quadrants and doing the math and math, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and then and then revising, of course. To but and I didn't realize until I was doing that that it would make the reader turn the book upside down to read it all the way through, and that's so right for the poem because. The poem is about turning our values right side up that we might survive, that the, that the earth might survive. So um, it was, it was just, it was just fabulous. Uh, it, uh, so tell us about uh, just, just choose one or two and maybe um, not the ones that we uh, or the, the public or, or our listeners would know and maybe of course, the the purpose is uh, for for children. This this is for I'm guessing as elementary and and middle school and and high school and adults. <laughs> I think I think it's really for upper elementary and on yeah. uh-huh. and on. Uh, they the on the flap. I think somewhere it says ages four, ages eight to twelve. But I think it's and it depends on the child, you know, and it depends on the reader. And some poems are more accessible for younger kids um, than than others, but uh, but I hope it will have a wider a wider audience. It also has a, a guide for parents and caregivers. Uh, it also includes a glossary, and in the back um, there is a profile of each. If you didn't know, now um, I'm so silly about some of these things. I just took off and and I would run into somebody. Um, uh, that I did not know and can't pronounce, by the way. Um, is it uh, a Chenu Sigara, uh, the, the Japanese activist? So what do we all do these days? I Googled just right away, just boom, 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 boom. And here it is in the back. So you don't have to, you don't have to use Google. You don't have to be near your computer to enjoy this. It's just, uh, so, so uh, again, tell us, um, tell us about him and why he's included. Well, he was an extraordinary uh, man, uh, Japanese, who became a diplomat and was uh, was posted in Lithuania uh, at the beginning of the Nazi occupation. And as Jews were fleeing, uh, they came to him to try to get uh, a passport to to go. Uh, you know, to get out, to flee. And you needed a passport, not just to get to Japan, but to go through the countries that it would take to get there. And, uh, and he was only allowed to give so many. And he kept, um, he kept getting in touch with his bosses and saying, please let me do more. And they, you know, they just would say no. And finally, he just did it. And with the consent of his family, they had a discussion. Uh, he he started writing, and he wrote them as fast as he could. Uh, he wrote as many as he could. When he had to leave, when the embassy was closed, he moved to a hotel and kept writing. And then when he had to leave the country, he was writing and throwing uh, documents out the window. And... Uh, uh, 
it's just an it's an incredible story. I didn't know about Sugihara before that, you know, and uh, it was just such an awe inspiring thing that he did. And he lost his job, of course, and had a quite a hard time um, after that. But he he knew that they could lose their lives, you know. Uh, but he felt that that was the choice they had to make. Well, that's just one example of the um, eighteen that are featured and and profiled. And uh, again, uh, congratulations! It's just a it's a beautiful book. Uh, the illustrations are extraordinary. Um, and on the back, uh, in these poems, you'll meet people who grew into big voices. Yours doesn't have to be big; it just has to be yours. It's a very touching uh, book, um, and I'm so excited for you. Kristen, has this been we, – we started out talking about children and the, and the pandemic and the social environment and uh, so many other things that we're dealing with today. For, for you as a writer, has it been particularly challenging, or do you have so much going on that you can't wait to get to the next project? I do think it's challenging. I think it's challenging anytime um, uh, a an artist or a writer or a creator of any kind is uh, has trouble removing themselves a little bit to create. And so anytime and right now is a very hard time to remove yourself. It's you can't um, remove yourself from the news for very long. You can't remove yourself from your house really much at all. Um, and so it has been a challenge. Um, I will say that I do feel like this is a great time for books like George Ella's that sounds amazing and lovely. And now I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy um, because I do feel like this is a time where artists and young artists, kids, uh, young readers are exploring their feelings about all of this. And I think it's a wonderful time to keep journals, to create art about this um, era that we're in. Um, So I, I do think it's a challenge, but I think it's very important to kind of record what we're feeling while we're here. Well said. And I want to uh, remind uh, our listeners um, that all of your books will be available uh, with uh, through our, our independent uh, book seller partner, Joseph Beth uh, Book Sales. Um, and if you're not able to go in person to the, to the stores uh, in Ohio and in Kentucky, you certainly can order online from Joseph Beth. And I would imagine... Uh, I know your book is out now, uh, Kristen and Georgella. Is is this book ready to be purchased? It comes out a week from today. A week from today. Wonderful. Well, uh, let, let, let me just tell you that we are uh, on October the 6th, is it? Uh, let me just glance at my calendar. Yep. And so uh, we're taping our podcast on October 6th. So the, uh, in a few days, yours will be ready. I think the uh, the podcast will be up a little bit later. So. Um, can check our schedule for that too. But let me just remind everyone that uh, George Ella and Kristen will be joined uh, by a couple of other uh, authors uh, on a, uh, a a lunchtime event on Tuesday, November the 10th uh, is uh, when your event is. And that is a, a big part of our Kentucky 
uh, Book Festival, our online Kentucky Book Festival this year. It starts on the 9th, goes all the way through the 14th, and we have some wonderful guests, uh, some uh, panels that are dedicated to children's writers and, and writing, and then a, a great lineup of um, adult uh, writers. And, and uh, so it's just, uh, we're not going to let uh, this COVID uh, beat us. Uh, we're going to celebrate uh, literature and literacy and uh, the readers and, and books uh, all the way through October and November. So thank you uh, both for being with me today on the Think Humanities podcast. Uh, good luck. And um, I will all be tuned in on uh, November the 10th for your panel with Sean and S.G. Wilson. So once again, thanks for being with me. Thank you. Good to see you. Good. Thank you. Good to see you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.